Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Kishore Hari. I work on the science policy team at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series addressing the myriad of impacts of COVID-19 on our community and society at large. It's generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. I'm pleased today to be in conversation with Alexis Madrigal. He's a journalist with The Atlantic, and today we're here to talk about his latest endeavor, the COVID Tracking Project. So let's get started. Alexis, welcome. In a March 3rd article in The Atlantic, you wrote, quote, we know irrefutably one thing about the coronavirus in the United States. The number of cases reported in every chart and table is far too low. When did you first notice that there was a problem with how testing was being reported in the United States? Yeah, it was really in that last week of February and first week of March. Um, you know, my reporting partner, Rob Meyer, and I um, were really trying to get a, a handle on like, wait a second, like it just feels like the U.S. is not doing a lot of testing. And then when we went to look at the CDC website, we realized that they'd actually pulled down some of the information that they previously had about testing in the United States. And we started to worry that um, despite the numbers that we heard uh, thrown around about how many hundreds of thousands of tests or eventually, you know, millions of tests were going to be available right away, that almost no one in the United States really had been tested to that point. Um, a couple of days later, uh, we wrote a follow-up story um, in which we, by that Friday, which was March 6th, uh, less than 2,000 Americans had been tested for uh, coronavirus. And obviously what that meant was that every case, like we, we, every number was shaped by the amount of testing that had been done. And when we really started to dig into that story, it, it really um, led to like sort of one inevitable conclusion, which was that the outbreak in the United States was far ahead of where everybody thought that it was. And that testing itself was this kind of very far upstream variable that no one contemplated failing as they did pandemic preparedness plans. Like, you know, I was going through King County's preparedness plan. There's five pages on how to test birds for avian flu. There's not a single page or even really more than a single sentence here or there about what might go wrong or right with testing of human beings. Like it just was something that was unfathomable, I think, in a lot of the planning um, and it obviously had pretty pretty serious consequences for the the trajectory of the outbreak of the U.S. I remember around that same time reading this blog post from this biologist at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center, Trevor Bedford, which laid out you know some of the their initial testing, and it was written in this non technical way. And it it uh, towards the end, you start to see him go through this sort of rigorous scientific analysis of what they're seeing, and it posits this idea that oh, there's a lot more cases out there based on what we're seeing than what the test numbers show. And I remember like alarm bells just going off in my head. Uh, and my first instinct is I didn't know what to do. Um, as a journalist, I would think your first instinct, okay, I got to write a story about this. Yeah. But how did you go from, okay, I got to write a story about this to, I think we need to start tracking the numbers ourselves. Like that seems like a massive leap to me. Yeah, I mean, so a couple things. Um, that scientist, Trevor Bedford, uh, is awesome. And I, I actually remember I was like, I had finished my work day, got, gotten the kids to bed. 
uh, I had done some yoga and I was literally sitting in my living room lying on the yoga mat and I picked up my phone. I'm sure this is not what you're supposed to do. And I'm going through Twitter and I see this post on that night, uh, the night he posted March 2nd. And I, I mean, I don't think my life has been the same since. I mean, I read that post and what I really, the, the, the thing that he said was that, you know, Seattle on March 1st probably has as many cases as Wuhan uh, had on January 1st, which is bad and it was bad. Um, and of course we now know that like New York, in fact, like had many more cases probably uh, than that, both because of original imports from China, but then a much larger wave of imports from Europe thereafter. And that was kind of the first and main evidence um, of how big the outbreak was, was examining these genomes of these viruses and being able to reconstruct a family tree and then kind of count the generations and say, well, let's see. So how long has this virus been around? If it's been around that long, then we probably have this many cases. You know, the, the thing that's amazing about it is what Trevor probably got a little wrong was that the doubling time wasn't six days, which is what his primary estimates were. There were more like maybe three days um, during that early period and certainly that high uh, in New York. And so we actually have many more cases than his kind of like toy model uh, kind of predicted from from what he knew from the, the early um, Seattle genomes. Um, all that meant that the delta between what we knew and what we needed to know in order to understand the outbreak was just enormous. Um, you know, the, the classic uh, thing would be the iceberg, right? I mean, we really literally had the tip of the iceberg and then underneath was this huge pyramid of, of cases that eventually would turn into some really sick people and eventually uh, into deaths. Um, and what, what really happened was we published this story about testing um, and that less than 2,000 people had been tested. And about 30 seconds afterwards, a friend of mine from college, we went to Harvard together. We were like buds as freshmen, as 18-year-olds. Like he's from rural Indiana, from rural Washington. I, mean, I was born in Mexico, but I grew up in rural Washington. And um, he emailed me almost immediately after the story came out. He said, did you use my spreadsheet for this? And I was like, no, I used my spreadsheet for this. And we, I shared the spreadsheet. And it turned out that we were basically doing the same thing. Um, and he, Jeff Hammerbacher is his name. And he actually was, uh, early at Facebook kind of building data structures in the, in the mid aughts. And then, uh, he actually went into bioinformatics and was, you know, one of the people who's credited with the, having created data science as a, as a field. Um, and so we were like, well, you know, this is this combined kind of data journalism effort. What if we just kind of spun something up and tried to like record these numbers over time and create this kind of time series data? With the idea that, of course, the CDC was going to start doing and publishing these numbers for states like within a few days, because, of, of course, like you look at other countries and their national health departments publish these statistics for other countries. For, for I remember the, looking at the early Google doc, the Google sheet, too, like you just like put it public on the Web. And it was like, I mean, like I remember the first version I looked at didn't even have labels across the top, I don't think. And it just had like numbers like scraped from some of the like the public health agency websites. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. I mean, we we both had realized that there was this way of backing into the national numbers, which was going to every state. Like it's sort of the federal system really handicaps us in a lot of ways uh, for responding to this epidemic. But in this one particular case, you're able to if the federal government doesn't provide something, you can create a, a national number by going to every state. The real problem is, and what this what makes this project hard, is like doing that once is fine, 
you can go through, anybody can go through the, you know, 56 states and territories of the United States and, and pull that data down one time. But the data is changing all the time. You got to do it over and over. Um, probably you're not going to have the same person do it over and over because it's pretty grueling. So, all right, now you're going to have a bunch of people who are doing it. And how do you sort of bake the logic into the system? How do you build the systems? How do you build the pyramid of people so that you can like sort of check people and double check people? And we never, we didn't really think about that at first. We were just like a few people filling in stuff on the spreadsheet. Um, but as time went on, you know, after that, like sort of first few days had gone by, we were like, wait, we need to build like a whole organization that has like at its core, this kind of data ingestion. And one of the things that's really clear, like my background, um, I mean, I was like an English guy and a writer, but I spent a lot of time around Berkeley and other institutions as a visiting scholar, largely in their kind of science and technology studies departments. And within that field, a lot of people talk about how data is not actually, there's no such thing as raw data, that like all data has all these human decisions, like sort of um, embedded in it. And this is basically like the most real and live version of that. You realize that you actually have to do quite intense analysis of both linguistically how the states are describing things, but also kind of looking across states and say, com doing comparative analysis and saying like, well, all these states are reporting it like this, but these guys are describing it a little differently. It should be recorded differently. It should be recorded in the same way. So there's actually this entire kind of journalistic project that's actually baked into creating the data set. I mean, um, you call it a journalistic project in a weird way. I, I look at it as a governmental project. Like, I was surprised that this wasn't a project that had um, been undertaken by the CDC for a long time because that kind of coordination of, of uh, sources, of reporting, that's what we've seen a lot of other countries do in terms of their tracking, like Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, all have done it that way. And we'll come back to the question of why haven't we done this yet um, in the in the U.S., but I want to dig into the numbers because I think yeah, the logistics sure. question you're talking about is really important. So at this point, the total tests in the U.S. are approaching, about, I think, 3 million, I think, is your is the latest update. I think yesterday was at about 2.9 million. Uh, so where are those numbers coming from? When you when I see a number on COVID tracking uh, that says there's been this many tests, where is that coming from? Yeah, it's coming from every state now reports almost all of their tests. So there's a few states that sort of lag in the way that they report the negative tests that they get. Um, but almost all states now report almost all tests. So literally human beings go to every single state health department website. They look at the tables. They look at the dashboards. Um, and we record that information onto a worksheet, which then gets sort of checked by another person. And then sort of a shift lead makes um, kind of determinations that sanity check kind of things. It gets run through some data quality sort of automation tools, and then it eventually gets published. So that's where it comes from. Those are just, this is purely a sort of like collecting project um, from these public health websites. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's where the data is coming from. How well does what you're reporting on match up to what we're hearing from the federal government, because they've been reporting numbers in like the daily press conferences and stuff. Are we seeing big differences or are they, are they kind of collapsing together? They're pretty much collapsing together at this point. Um, you know, we weren't sure for a while uh, in particular how the commercial laboratories, which is to say the commercial testing industry, which is dominated by two big players, Quest and LabCorp, um, their reporting initially to back to states was pretty spotty. 
Um, and we weren't sure how much of the universe we were capturing. I think now we're probably capturing something like 90% of the test, maybe more. Um, and that's been backed up by some sources that I have in the government, because as it turns out, the government probably is doing a version of this. Um, they're probably doing it in a slightly different way, collecting directly from hospitals as well as commercial laboratories. Um, one of the difficulties of doing it that way and one service that the state public health departments provide is you get a test done. That's just a specimen, right? That they're, that specimen is not necessarily attached to an individual person. When that thing comes back and is reported to a state, they have this quite complex task of like, okay, we have this thing. We have this specimen. Does that map to a person in our state? And if it does, are there multiple specimens that map to a person in the state? And that's actually been one of the key sort of data challenges. Um, and we really saw that primarily in California, um, which started to report not just the pending tests in, in terms of tests that needed to be done, of which there was a quite substantial backlog, but also their backlog of patient matching to specimen. And I think that that's one of the key issues for the federal government right now um, is they are going direct around states to sources of uh, lab, you know, laboratory sources, hospitals and public health laboratories and commercial diagnostic guys. And they're getting that stuff reported back in. So they, they're dealing in specimens. Um, and that makes it a little bit more difficult for them to say the kind of stuff we can say, which is that this many people have been tested, which I think actually is the most important number. Although the other one is also important too, because that tells you something about the testing capacity as well. So I want to get, I'm going to get to the pending and the backlog, uh, really shortly, uh, cause I know there's been some, uh, questions about that already in the chat. Um, but I want to start with a, a grand question before we get into the, the numbers. So if we've tested 3 million people, that's almost 1% of the U.S. population, like, yeah. you know, somewhere yeah, a little bit less, getting yeah. close to it. Uh, but every public health official that I see on the record says, we're going to have to test a lot more. Uh, do we know what a lot more means? Like, is there a, a target number for testing or is that even a way to even think about this? Yeah, I mean, some of the numbers I've heard kicked around are like 20 million tests a day. I mean, we're talking like huge numbers of, of tests. I think the way to think about it is this. You basically have this sliding scale. More testing allows you to do less intense social distancing measures. Like that's kind of the trade-off. So there is probably some level or there are some saltations within, you know, sort of increases of, of testing that will, that would actually, you know, be meaningful, um, like sort of plateaus, but really it kind of is more testing equals less social distancing. And it's probably, there's, you know, the, the relationship between those variables is actually probably pretty linear because you've, you've got to, um, you've got to test more people in order to let people move around more freely. And it's not like if you hit a certain number, suddenly everyone can go free. It's just sort of like the more you have of this, the less you have of that. And that actually is what makes some of the, the failures of U.S. testing um, on a per capita basis to be so bad because a lot of the other things that are happening, like the economic destruction that we see, a lot of that is coming from um, our, our inability to see where the virus is. And the number that I keep looking at is if you look at like South Korea, which at one point had the same number of cases as the U.S. and had a very different response and it's had it spun up a lot of like per capita testing and, and all these other things, um, then their positive rate 
for a test. They give a hundred tests, two people come back positive. We give a hundred tests, 20 people come back positive. So what that says to me is both our testing criteria is we're testing mostly sick people still, very sick people. Um, and we don't actually have a lot of eyes on sort of like the general population who's, who's moving around. So we're, we're days or sometimes even weeks behind where the infection is. Exactly. And so this is a, we need to get much closer to real time on those things. Um, and there's, there's a whole bunch of different levers to sort of get there, but, um, we're not even close as you're saying. So I want to do a little like data journalism unpacking, um, uh, and linguistics, as you said, uh, because you report a certain kind of data on your site. So you report positive, negatives, pending, deaths, hospitalizations, people in the ICU, and people on ventilators. Mm-hmm. We actually report so two go- kinds of hospitalizations, but yes, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go through all of those kind of rapid fire and see if we can unpack what they mean. So positives. Uh, I think the natural question I have when I look at positives, are we talking about the same tests for all these positives? Um, and do we have a sense of like, and you already alluded to, like there's multiple different companies running these tests. Uh, so I think my base question is like, when I see a positive number, should I be looking at that as an absolute, like that stone cold reliable, or is there some kind of uncertainty even in the positive? Number? Yeah, there's just two layers of the uncertainty in the positives. One is that the accuracy of these tests as a result of both like the human swabbing of people, but also just like um, the the machinery itself and how it was run and the tests and the different manufacturers, and all this stuff. There's a, there's a bit of uncertainty. And it, I some people estimated quite high that the that the actual accuracy of a test for an individual person is maybe seventy percent. Like that is to say, seventy percent of the people who um, who get a negative that is accurate that they actually do not have it. So it's like so it's a little um, it's a little like tricky. That's terrifying, by the way. That is that uh, is terrifying. It's totally terrifying. They, there is a, there's probably quite a few. Um, uh, false negative people walking around. Um, so that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is we had a situation with Wyoming a few days ago um, where there had been one number at the top. This is how many cases there are, um, positive cases in, in Wyoming. But it actually, then they actually disaggregated the number into positive tests and then presumed positive. So even within some of these numbers, we think what we're getting is uh, laboratory-confirmed test results but some states may not be reporting in precisely that way. So one of those things sort of suggests that what we're seeing is kind of the lower bound, right? In the sense that um, there's there's probably more cases above that. And, and there's, oh, there's one other bit of uncertainty, which we'll get to in a second. And the other suggests that maybe there's a few less cases because some presumptive cases and not laboratory confirmed cases are also being included. The... Um, the other like much greater sense of uncertainty is we know that we're missing huge chunks of positive cases um, all along the line while we've been doing this reporting. We've heard from individuals who were like, um, I was in contact with a like someone who with a known laboratory positive and this and that and the other thing, and I still haven't been able to get a test. Um, and so because of that, we sort of know that we're missing a big chunk. And, you know, no one really knows how big it is, but a lot of people just like take the real, the number of laboratory confirmed cases and just multiply it by some number. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 10. Like no one's actually totally sure. And we won't really know until, um, a lot, uh, until antibody tests come online. And I know we'll probably talk about that. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Because we have to get to that seroprevalence number uh, to, to really start to do those models. 
Uh, okay, so that's positives. I'm uh, more unsettled than I was before talking about positives. Uh, negatives. Uh, is everyone reporting negatives to, um, uh, to begin with? So all the states had their state public health laboratories uh, report negatives all along. But earlier in this data, a lot of the commercial laboratories were not reporting um, all of the all of their tests. A lot of them were not reporting negatives. And, you know, pretty you can, you know, most of the states got to reporting commercial negatives uh, over the last few weeks. And there's a few kind of weird holdout states like Missouri, which reports them sometimes, you know, there's like a few things like that, but it's much less of a problem um, than it used to be for sure. And um, what I would say about it is if you're ever playing with the data, know that in the early weeks, uh, the positive rate, so if you just sort of took positives over total tests, that rate is artificially inflated. Um, and now I think that number is like pretty settled in. Um, and it's about, and it's about 20%, which is extremely high. Um, and in New York, uh, it's been like over 40%. And one thing that's, um, interesting is to, you know, in all these things to kind of do the international comparative kind of metrics. Um, so, you know, you have South Korea at 2%. But you have in Lombardy, they only ever got to like 30% uh, positive test rate. So you're, you're kind of looking at a situation where you, you, the U.S. outbreak is both very severe and there's the, these, that testing number indicates that there's a lot of less sick people who also have the disease who aren't being tested. Um, and that is uh, another piece of evidence uh, along those lines is also just that if you plot um, total tests and cases in the U.S., so like you know, they the lines track each other almost exactly. They're like very, very tightly correlated, which sort of implies that if we were to step up testing, we would also just get a lot more cases. And again, implies that there's sort of more of the iceberg uh, out there than than we're able to see. But but the way that you're talking about it is like that's not necessarily scary. That's actually reassuring if we step up testing and see a lot more. That allows us to do to make some more informed decisions from a yeah. public health If we step up testing and we see fewer positives, that's better. <laughs> if we step up testing and we see more positives, that's kind of the base case that I think we should be expe- expecting right now. Um, okay, pending. And the reason I want to bring up pending is something local here in California. For a long time, uh, up until probably about a week ago, that pending number was so big um, in California. Uh, why are there so many pending tests? And can you translate tending to to what that real world feeling is of of uh, the time between when I take a test and and when I actually get my results is that what pending means yeah it it really it, it it's two things really um and I kind of referenced this a little bit early one one is you know March 4th through March 6th um the administration is saying okay commercial testing laboratories are going to be part of this whole of America approach to how we do testing in response to this uh, to this outbreak, um, and the part of the reason is they have the kind of logistical apparatus. Like you know, there are some university laboratories, like say at the University of Washington Virology Lab, they they actually have a lot of capacity and they can bring things in. The problem for them and the kind of the limiting factor for them is not is not the machines. It's literally like uh, someone has to go pick up the specimen. Someone has to open the package. Like you need a lot of employees to do that kind of thing. And the commercial laboratories do, in fact, have that infrastructure in place. So I actually see going to the commercial laboratories as um, a not unreasonable thing to have done. 
The problem is with going to what are called these national reference laboratories is that you add a lot of delay into your test results because it's not being done anywhere close to you. So like if you're doing the testing in a hospital, the time it takes to get the sample to the machine and then from the machine back is like, a, a, you know, it's a, a negligible part of the overall uh, time. Because they're going report. across so, the street or something. Like across, that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, a lot of um, the really more successful uh, testing operations have come with these really tightly coupled laboratories and healthcare systems. So like Mayo up in Minnesota, Tricor in New Mexico, uh, bioreference laboratories in the Northwell healthcare system in, in uh, New York State, uh, AirUp in, uh, in Utah. The, the more tightly coupled the systems were, the, the sort of better they worked. And you didn't get these really long delays. With LabCorp and Quest, which are quite outside the healthcare systems and are sort of you kind of send it off, you know, and then you, you get something back eventually, um, it, things took a long time. And particularly in March, they were completely overwhelmed by the demand. This was during the time in which President Trump had said, anyone who wants a test can have a test. Just noting that wasn't true at the time. It's still not true now. And it probably actually shouldn't be true. Um, what that statement did, though, along with the sort of overall um, statements that the coronavirus task force were making, that there would be millions of tests available um, within days, was the demand flooded, absolutely flooded the commercial uh, test providers. And so in a lot of cases, and this is more complex and it's probably worth getting into, but there's different machines. You, they brought up a slower version of way of doing the test first. And a lot of those early orders went through that slower process and led to this quite large backlog. Um, you know, something like in, the, I mean, it was in the six digits for Quest, and we assume it was probably something similar for LabCorp. So you're talking hundreds of thousands of people are waiting there for four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. At, at a certain point, there's no like real clinical value uh, to that test. And I even had, you know, some people say to me that like anything more than 48 hours, um, in a, particularly for a hospital setting, the test uh, result is basically worthless. Um, you know, you it's it's really and it's a and it's a tragedy because you're wasting all the uh, all the PPE, all of the labor. The, these people have to be dealt with as if they had COVID, even if they don't. You know, I mean, there's just like yeah, and the, then the you're testing. you're missing the the human behavior part of it too, because those people with that information might change their behavior which impacts the course of the virus in a exponential way. Totally. There were so many things about the delays that, um, that set us back in, in March, you know, like you can really, you can look at February as this time where we were sort of blind that uh, you can look at March as this time where we were sort of behind. Um, and um, now here we are like halfway through April. And we now again have hit sort of like a testing plateau of, you know, around say like 140,000 tests a day. I, from what I'm hearing from the commercial laboratories, I do expect that number to start to move again. Um, but it's not moving by hundreds of thousands. It's moving by tens of thousands. And given what people are saying about, you know, test, trace, isolate, and these other kind of, um, you know, buzzwords for an eventual plan to to reopen the economy in some ways, I mean, it's not even approaching that level um, and on top of that, we also have like supply chain issues, which have started to play because people because they went to the big country, German, the German, and South Korean have testing on a per capita basis, much greater than ours, without using like every swab that's ever been produced on Earth. You know, we actually are creating, and uh, we're like a you know, 
a small investor can invest over here and they're not going to like throw the market off. The U.S. starts to do this kind of thing with enough people and trying to do this many tests and you sort of throw everything off. You, um, you're, you're, you're disrupting the supply chain in a way that it can't actually handle. So I want to pick at one thing you said, which was, um, you know, uh, with the promise of everyone that wants a test should be able to get a test. You said as an addendum to that, I'm not sure every that should be the case. Um, why is that? Like, if I want a test, why shouldn't I be able to get the test? Well, the testing supplies are limited. I mean, that's that's the main reason, you know. Uh, and every test that goes into a lab has to be processed. And, you know, until we have, like, very, very easy and, like, stable supply chains and all that stuff, you kind of do need to keep the testing criteria a little bit tighter. I mean, I think in the ultimate scenario, yes, anyone who wants a test should be able to have a test. But how long, how far away are we from that? Like pretty far, pretty far, you know? Uh, the last one I really want to talk about is deaths in terms of the, the data source. And by the way, if um, for everyone listening, if you want to go look at the data yourself, go to covidtracking.com uh, and you can see the historical and the state-by-state level of data. Uh, deaths. So deaths, I thought was going to be the kind of rock solid thing because we have all these systems to report deaths in this country. But how do we know that the death reported is due to COVID um, versus some of the underlying conditions? Because we know a lot of people that are uh, are dying, they have other you know um, uh, conditions uh, that are exacerbating uh, mm-hmm. the advance of the disease. Mm-hmm. This is one where there's just such crosswinds, right? On the, on the one hand, there is the, there's the problem that you're referencing, which is what, how do we, how do we do the attribution here? Is it COVID-19 or is it that you, you know, uh, had, had a heart attack or something? You know, like there's, there's so many different places where you could sort of, so many different ways you could do this attribution. And we do know that these underlying conditions are, are, um, uh, they oftentimes maybe are the predominant factor and just COVID-19 is kind of what, what finishes someone off. Um, on the other hand, just in a general sense, what's interesting is I was talking with one lab testing director who was saying that before all this, pneumonia deaths in particular were one of those things that was kind of like famously unreliable <laughs> because it is, it, it turns out that it's just, you know, mysterious pneumonia deaths for old people are in fact like something that happens. Um, and it's probably one reason why we didn't pick it up as fast as we might, um, because this, this does happen sometimes. And so we're not really sure, you know, there's, there's one argument that we're, um, that we're attributing too many deaths to COVID, but we're also probably missing a whole bunch too. Um, and a lot of the people that I kind of trust in this world think eventually we're going to have to evaluate this kind of like a hurricane or something like that, where you essentially look at like, well, how many de- how many people would we have predicted to die? And then how many people really did die? And, you know, one of the one of the crosswinds there is, you know, people dying in their homes before they had any tests. And I think, you know, um, New York is where people have kind of done the digging on this and, you know, found that normally only like a couple dozen people die in their home every day, but it's been 250 people a day. Um, since the outbreak. And that's like a very significant addition to New York's numbers if those people, uh, if that if that extra uh, margin is in fact people dying from COVID-19. And there's also, you know, in other countries as well as here, there's this, like what happens if it gets into a nursing home and it kills a bunch of people before anybody can be tested? Um, do we attribute those deaths or not? 
and I, I think so. There's a lot of crosswinds on that death number. Um, I and I think that it's going to be quite some time before we know how how firm it is. That said, that said, it probably still is the firmest number that we have because the adjustments are probably you know, more like 10 or 20% in a given direction. And because there's some crosswinds, they may sort of be canceling each other out. We don't know exactly what that is, but it just means it's probably the closest we've got to, to a real, you know, hard number you could like hang your hat on. But it seems what's important is not to look at the numbers as absolute, but as a, as something that's evolving. Uh, and will be evolving just given the dynamic nature and the complexity of these. So totally, like, I mean, that's what I took away from talking to, you know, people involved with the, the project and other epidemiologists is like, there's no like hard, firm science here. And a lot of the science that we're hearing is probably going to change. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, you know, this goes directly to something that I'm extremely interested in right now, which is just sort of what models are for. You know, because people talk about like modeling this and modeling that. And of course, there's models that are online and you can play with and do all these things with. And and of course, that's interesting, right? Um, but models are interesting when you sort of, you you read them as sets of assumptions about what might happen. And then you feed data into them. And then you can look at those assumptions and say, well, like, are those good assumptions? Are those assumptions holding? Um, and the truth is, we have so much uncertainty right now that you actually need to try a bunch of those different models. And it's not about is this one model correct or is this one model, you know, accurately predicting X or Y at the national level or regional or state or local level. It's more like they're tools to think with and people want these models to be something else. They want them to be like future predictors, but they're tools to think with. And if, as long as we use them like that and they're understood like that, I find them extremely useful. And I think one of the things that I'm worried about is that, people who are using models as tools to think with are encountering um, sort of rhetorical resistance to the current path of uh, governmental action who are looking at those models and saying, oh, the government did X or Y because of this model and this model's wrong and therefore the government action is wrong. Whereas, I, I mean, one of the stories I'm working on right now is how decision-making like this really does and should work. And I think that models are but one piece of evidence among many that this virus was something that required us to take this course of action, which of course is horribly painful. I mean, my parents are older and um, uh, have jobs, but like our fixed income have no income right now. And it's, it's like, I, know, I mean, like, you know, this is a brutal thing for people economically. And it, of course, is not landing equally on the country. I think what we're going to see is that African-American unemployment it reaches levels that we haven't seen in a long, long, long time. And um, just based on some sources that I've been talking to and um, there, but there are reasons for it, you know? And the, the thing that I keep saying to people is if you want to like what, what experts are saying right now in the United States and everywhere else is shaped by what they know and sort of the realities of their institutions and the political constraints that they have on them. And that's true everywhere. So if you want to get more of that signal of what people know and what they really think we should do, you look, you look internationally, you look comparatively across all these countries 
And you say like, okay, in the political reality of this place, they couldn't say this, but they could say that. And the political reality of this place, they couldn't say this, but they could say that. And if you start to look at all those, like what are the underlying features? Everybody has had to do the lockdown. <laughs> you know, there's no places that tried not to do the lockdown. They got to do the lockdown. You know, in some cases it's more voluntary. In other cases it's worked better. You know, like there's all these different other components to it that are cultural, societal, political, and all these things. But like, what the United States is doing is what every country that has encountered this has had to do in some form or another, and none of them even have an outbreak that's as bad as ours. So the idea that the U.S. is like off in a corner because of some weird model that we developed is just total BS and has no grounding in the, the global reality of this outbreak. So you touched on some of the racial disparities we're going to see on the economic side. There's also a lot of reporting out of, especially out of New York, that we're seeing a lot of racial disparities in terms of the outcomes for the disease itself, that we're seeing a lot of African-American deaths, uh, a lot of Latino deaths in a higher proportion. Uh, now, that's a really complicated thing to track for many reasons. Like we have to look at the population of, the, of those areas, but is that something that you're thinking about tracking within this project? Uh, and how are you approaching that complex problem? Yeah. So just today, uh, we are formalizing the project with, uh, Ibram Kendi's, um, anti-racist, uh, uh, institute at, uh, American University. Um, you know, the COVID tracking project is like sort of, you know, wing of the Atlantic. And Ibram Kendi is also an Atlantic contributing writer who's been kind of at the forefront of pushing, uh, for this information to be, uh, to be collected. So we've started, we did our first run on Sunday, um, and there were 29 states that report some kind of racial data. Um, it probably will not surprise you that this data is has some very serious flaws with it. Um, I mean, one very basic one to point out that sort of gives you a sense of like sort of where we're at with it. Um, you know, we know that white Latins like myself have a different uh, sort of outcomes and health things and economic situations and stuff from Black Latins, uh, like from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, this is sort of like a very consistent finding and segregation and health disparities and in, in a lot of different um, things. These are these are independent communities that are sort of lumped together in sort of one ethnic group for some good reasons, but also um, but also there's major differences. And if you look at the way that most states are reporting this data, like take New York, they're reporting the racial data as being Black, White, Asian, Hispanic. We don't know, like, are Dominicans going into, like, Black? Are they in, like, Hispanic? Like, what about Puerto Ricans? What about, like, there's just, like, uh, what about Cubans? Like, there's all these questions um, that that come up from recording the data like that, not to mention that that's not the way the government records other data. So one thing we want to be able to do is we want to be able to take that data and look at sort of, you know, the census data, um, existing known sort of health disparity stuff and the environmental conditions of a particular place, because, you know, this is a respiratory disease. And one imagines that you have a greater, um, you know, environmental pollution burden that, you know, this, that may play into it. There's some reporting about that out of, uh, around New Orleans. So we need to be able to match this data up against the data that the government already produces. And yet Georgia is the only state that's actually reporting racial data in a way that conforms to uh, the way that this is being recorded uh, in other government data. And so that just lets you know, we're it's very basic uh, data quality um, and sort of data logic problems that we're still dealing with. 
Um, and one of the things that I think this project has been very good at, in large part because our volunteers have, of which there are dozens and dozens, um, have been very good at identifying these problems, then very good at, you know, the reportery types go talk to the states and say, hey, can you guys do something different about this? Then we have like a state outreach team that goes to sort of other levels of government and says, hey, can you guys do something about this? So it's this kind of constant pressure, you know, it's like you, there's, a, there's some feedback loops that we're trying to build with these states so that we can say, look, we're looking across these things. This state has discovered it's possible to report things this way, which means it's probably possible for you to report things this way which then means we can have standard data, which then means we can match it against existing government data. And now we have a useful data set and not like a set of disparate data points that are difficult to compare and therefore like lose a lot of their value. Um, and, you know, I think what, what I'm expecting is that we're going to see the health disparities that, that we see in almost every facet of American life show up here. You know, I mean, there's, you think about the, environmental burdens, you think about the stress burdens um, that, that people in poor communities are, are experiencing, you're going to see those, it's going to be reflected here too. Um, and we might even see them exacerbated. I, that's state. what I expect. That's what I expect. Yeah. Particularly because of who is deemed an essential worker, who has to continue going to work, who's, who's not. Like, and there's, there's a variety of, of reasons. But we also want to be able to make those determinations um, uh, in a in a data driven way, so that we know we can we can kind of parcel out like, well, did it did it just conform to our existing disparities or did it exacerbate it? You know, was was there some leveling effect um, in in COVID nineteen? You know, there's a lot of different things that that we can track. I just think the, the number one thing is we just got to do it, um, and the states got to do it, and the hopefully the federal government steps in on and and starts to report these numbers as well because it should shape their. I mean, what what I think is really important to say it should shape the response strategy. Like if you've got really vulnerable communities that are dying at really high rates for any reason, then that should shape the response strategy. So the idea that we wouldn't want to try and pinpoint community needs just because it requires talking about race is like insane to me. You know, like if you were like people who live by rivers are dying at a higher level, you'd want to know who lives by a river, you know? I mean, and it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like we, these are structural things we need to look at. It's not about individual people being racist. It's about the systems that drive these disparate outcomes. And we need to understand how those systems are serving people. And I imagine this is going to have regional differences. Like for whatever reason, California seems to be in a really different situation, even though it has incredible health disparities uh, versus what we're seeing in New York. And I've seen a lot of people try to explain that and they just, like, it's weird to say this, but they keep coming back to like, yes, we took these public health interventions, but on some level, like California might have just gotten lucky, too. I mean, and... I've thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's your take? Um, yeah, might have just gotten lucky. I mean, I, I you know, you want to say, I think there's a few things like our state healthcare policy is better than a lot of states that are experiencing other other things. That's that's one sort of like systemic factor that I think probably makes a difference. Um, you know, I, I don't know though. I mean, so many things about this, you want to be able to say something definitive. You want to be able to explain what happened, but California right now just to me, doesn't totally make sense why we wouldn't have a, a worse outbreak given how early we had community transmission here, um, given our links to Asia, given our links to Europe for that matter, you know, um, 
given our links to Seattle, like California is kind of at the center, given our links to New York, California is kind of at the center of all of the, of the major outbreak vectors. And yet, I mean, if you look at deaths in California, you just don't see, particularly on a per capita basis, you just don't see what, what's happening in other places. I want to get to a, a couple more questions before we turn it over to audience Q&A. Um, just really quickly, how does COVID tracking's data uh, 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 talk to or compare with like what we're seeing out of the New York Times and the Johns Hopkins dashboard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and like the fact that we're seeing like every person on Twitter create their own chart these days. So, like, <laughs> how does this yeah. all kind of You realize together? how many people love Excel, you know, uh, yeah. or Google Sheets. Um, so we, our lane is basically state level data. So um, for some things, counties are extremely important, right? I mean, a lot of healthcare systems are quite localized and things like that. The problem is that the only county level data you can get consistently is cases and deaths. Um, and so because of that, the data sets are pretty simple, you know, <laughs> it's two columns. Um, we think the people doing um, county work are, are heroes. So, I mean, they, what we do is with humans, we look at it with humans, they have to build a lot of scraping tools and then try and bring in some humans to like do data correction. But it's a, it's really complicated technical problem. Um, and the New York times in particular is enriching that with a huge amount of reporting. I mean, we've heard that they have might have 50 people um, working on that project alone. Um, so, you know, thanks for your subscriptions for them. Um, that's where, that's where the money's going right there. 50, 50 expensive people are working on it. Um, we think their data is great. It matches up pretty, pretty well with ours. If you roll it up, um, they're usually a little bit ahead of us because they have reporters, um, talking at the county level and the counties report to the states. So like, if you want the absolute most current thing, you should, you should, the New York times is quite good on that. Um, but what we have is we have like a broader uh, set of data. So we have the testing data, we're the only ones who have that. And then we have this outcomes data around hospitalizations, which is quite complex um, and has a lot of problems, but at least it's being recorded somewhere. Um, and that's kind of how, that's been our approach in a lot of these things. It's like, listen, we make the least bad decisions we can make in recording this data, but at least we have a baseline. At least people can look back and say, well, what did we know? And how, like, solve some of these like epistemological problems of like, did we know that back then? You know, because there's really not any good, um, there's not really any other source for that stuff um, that's been collected in this way. So you've been tracking the, what's called the PCR test right now for viral loads, but we know there's a whole nother test uh, coming, the antibody test to see who has had this disease. And it, it's largely been used by other countries. Like we see reports out of Wuhan right now that a lot of workers are get, are taking antibody tests uh, before they go back to work. Um, first, are, are there any plans to track antibody tests um, on your site? Um, and then like, is like, how do you even think about something like antibody tests, which has its own set of uh, difficulties in sort of analyzing mm -hmm. and, and tracking? I think there's a couple of things that we've heard about. We've had like a group forum to sort of explore how we're going to do this for the, a few weeks now. Um, a, we haven't seen any data show up in the States. Um, Colorado, we know has been running like a small pilot. California appears to have some tests um, going. Our main thing right now is to like beg the States to report this separately um, that they don't try and like mix the streams and just like, like just do it as its own thing, you know? Um, because that'll make it easier for us to track for sure. Um, the other thing we're hearing is um, not all these tests are going to be very reliable. Um, there are a lot of manufacturers trying to sell these tests. 
Um, and we really, 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 if we're going to use this as a way of reopening society, we want to be really careful about what we're doing. Um, we, a, a lot of what I have heard, and I'm not going to be the best at explaining the statistical principles behind this, but a lot of what I've heard is essentially your individual test results really depend on the prevalence of the virus in the community at large. So if we don't know, there, there are these sort of variables that are like quite tightly related to each other. So the, one of the problems is, is particularly in the early going, your individual test result is probably not very reliable indicator of whether or not you had COVID. At a population level, it may actually be quite useful, but at an individual level, it's probably not going to be that way. There's also, you know, some questions about, are we rewarding people who took like fewer precautions because now they've had it already and, you know, now they can go back to work. I'm like, I'm personally a little bit less worried about that moral hazard problem. I think maybe moral hazards like that are slightly overrated in general, but I think in this particular case, um, in the implication that it's people who took uh, fewer precautions who got it is probably um, worth considering given that how concentrated our outbreak is in just a few places. And I don't think it's largely people's fault that they got this, but more that they happen to be in a heavily infected place. So that's how we're thinking about it. We'll record it. I mean, I think what um, talked with some sources in the government today about how they're planning on doing it. And um, I, I think it's probably going to look really similar, but just the, just broken out into like a different column, you know, um, that's, that's, there are different antibodies you can test for and there's more complex ways of recording it. But so far the early results that people within the government are seeing um, are that the test results look much more like the PCR ones, but just marked like antibody tests. Uh, let's talk about contact tracing. So Governor Newsom, who just spoke uh, in the last 20 minutes, talked about that being really the next phase. We hear that and see that from other countries. And contract tracing is is not like a new thing. Like every pandemic that humans have gone through in the 20th century has had an element of contact tracing. And it's usually like a boots on the ground approach. Like we're going to find out who you who you've been in contact with. We're going to call them or knock on doors and go figure them out. But now we're talking about it in 2020, and there's a whole tech component to this. And you've covered tech um, for a long time. And uh, I'm wondering, so first, can you comment like on this whole new phase? Like, Do you see preparations already happening to get us to build the infrastructure we need to do contact tracing? Oh, yeah. I and mean, then, I think like, what role is tech going to play? In yeah, it? I mean, I think tech's got to play a, a huge role in it. I mean, of course, you know, we've, we've been in the midst of like a tech backlash for a long time. You know, there have been privacy uh, considerations all the way back to really like the Snowden revelations and even before, but that was 2013. We're talking seven years that tech has sort of been, um, particularly on a privacy level, kind of um, uh, an embattled industry. You know, <sighs> I think for me, it, it there that we want it, we want accountability for. Are we doing this in the most privacy protective way possible? But at the end of the day, is tech gonna have to play a major role? Are the data sets that already exist at Facebook, at Apple, at Google, the cell phone providers, and everything else are those gonna be useful? Yes, and like. Um, you know, when we are, you say the data sets, are you talking about like the mobility data sets? Yeah, or, exactly, exactly. Or something like more the, than the location tracking, but even you know, even beyond that, you know, um, like if you think about that 
people know, like you think about that, that uh, the whole point of the social graph was to sort of know who you're connected to. Um, there are ways in which Facebook and other places that have access to that kind of social graph data might be able to, um, to alert people that maybe in their community, there's a lot of spread going on. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I guess I should also say like, I'm for it. Like I'm against the pandemic, you know, I'm for it. And I think, you know, you don't want to get like railroaded into a really bad solution. And obviously like a lot of like tech policy people are very, are, are very worried about that. I just want to make sure that we're making decisions like on planet B in which like, you know, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs and tens of thousands of people are going to lose their lives and not sort of like just have like reactive uh, planet A policy like fights where we don't have this massive thing to deal with. Um, and uh, the But thing? I also yeah. hear some like reticence in this and tell me if I'm wrong that you're you're not saying like Apple and Google getting in this game is a panacea for contact tracing either. Yeah, no, like, there's they're gonna not going to be, solve it for Yeah, it. there's going to have to be a lot of people involved, you know. I mean, that's one thing that we know. And one of one of the things that I'm kind of I would say that the bulk of my skepticism lies in imagining that you can build a super duper automated system to do this. Um, in part, because every time I look in, I mean, my whole history of reporting on technology is every time you look into something that looks like super heavily automated, there's this huge kind of error rate, which gets kicked to a huge number of people. Um, and I think that's something that I like pretty actively worry about that, like, We'll try and launch something like this in a, in a highly automated way because it makes sense as the most efficient system. But then we'll find that all the ways that it breaks requires suddenly scrambling and bringing on all these people like in content moderation for Google or for Facebook or, you know, any of these things end up turning out to need tons of people. And like, where are we going to get those people? You know, like that's to me, that's really the the question. It's not like we have hundreds of thousands of people just ready to do contact tracing right now. Um, and that's something that I, I worry about like that, that seems hard. And just having watched companies like Facebook have to go out and hire tens of thousands of content moderators and how difficult that has been, even for these highly functional, you know, very well resourced organizations. Do we imagine that the state public health departments are going to be able to do that? Who, who do we imagine is going to be able to hire all those people and do it in a way? I mean, what the census people, I mean, they're, they, they do it. I mean, I, I don't know exactly where that labor piece is going to come from, but it does strike me that it's going to be like a, like a, just a huge, huge piece of this. Um, and like you said, it's not new. It's just, we've never had to do it at this scale or attempt to do it at this speed. And I just don't, I don't personally see being able to do that as fast as you could sort of roll out the tech solution. I don't think the full solution that you need to do it is going to be as fast as people want it to be. Uh, so I'm going to go to some audience Q&A. Uh, Richard Mancuso asks, uh, what, what's your thoughts on the at-home tests and the point-of-care tests and what's their viability in what we're seeing uh, now with uh, the kind of go-to-the-lab? Yeah, you know, the Abbott test came online, you know, made a big splash uh, publicly for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, it's not like we, you know, are supposed to have 50,000 a day capacity. Uh, I, I don't know that we necessarily have seen that full capacity used, and I'm not totally sure why that is. Um, obviously, that kind of test is extremely useful in, in a lot of uh, circumstances. Um, I think that a lot of big kind of like lab people were like, yeah, it's good, but it's kind of onesies and twosies, you know, like you, you can use it, but it's not like a high throughput test. 
Um, and you know, the at-home test will, will also have a, a play a, a role in this for sure, particularly, uh, I think on the antibody side. Um, but the, the thing that I'm actually pretty excited about and that goes along with like trace, um, and being able to trace and isolate and test, um, is this kind of a idea of doing like group testing. Like there's ways in which you can actually like, uh, lump specimens together. Um, so you could say, for example, where this might be useful is like, let's say one of these tracing systems has identified a hundred people who may have come into contact with an infected person. You actually can do sort of like a group test for all of them and say, oh, is anyone here testing positive? And you actually do it in these kind of tranches and people have come up with all these ways to be able to test like a lot of people with many fewer tests. And I, to me, that is, uh, like something that's really not high enough up in most conversations about how we're going to do this because apparently it's been used, uh, for example, um, with HIV to be able to test like lots of people, um, and then be able to like stop these transmission chains that, uh, that have, have occurred. And I'm, that's to, to me, like thinking about those other testing solutions where we may be able to get more per testing kit is probably like a good thing because the supply chain issues are going to be pretty real. And the group one is one of the most exciting to me. Uh, Matt Davis asks, can you speak to the impact um, of testing stats where somebody tests negative one week and tests positive the next week? Is that going to be an issue where we're going to have to test people multiple times? Yeah, that does already happen now. Some people do get multiple tests. Um, you know, I think the in the early days, one thing that we saw like early testing was that there was a lot more variability in the testing. Um, once that number has really seemed to have come down, the number of sort of like um, specimens <laughs> per, per person, uh, I think it is going to be a problem though. Like if the accuracy of the tests is not super, super high, that can definitely happen, right? And um, I don't know that there's really like, an easy way out of that in the immediate term. Um, I think what we're sort of all hoping um, is that our sort of pre-germ theory, just stay in your house stuff works well enough um, that when we go back out to do all this testing again, um, there'll be many fewer people who are actually positive, many fewer people to test and, and all of those things. Um, but I don't think there's like an easy solution to just the, the, basic inaccuracy of the test or unreliability of the test. Uh, Anjali asks, in the absence of mass testing, realistically, what does a post-COVID world look like? Is there one? Oh, man, it's it's the model along, right? I mean, it's going to be you keep this going till you get the cases reduced, um, then you sort of come back out. I mean, there are some models for this, uh, particularly in Asia, that like, you know, if someone tests positive like at your work you don't necessarily shut down the entire place you shut down like just the place right around them you send people in you know on alternating days um i think that there's probably like a, a spreadsheet full of things that you can do that sort of allow you to sort of open up in like a reasonable way but it's not going to be what what we all want i think which is it, to go back the way that it was before and even with mass testing i don't think that it'll just go back to the way that it, it was before um i think that's reiterated by most epidemiologists and i think there's a great piece by your colleague ed, ed young today in the mm -hmm. Atlantic that um we should start getting used to the idea that normal isn't a, a thing anymore like, just, and we're gonna have to uh, this is an opportunity to define what what normal can be mm -hmm. um 
and we've seen that historically emerging out of pandemics is like there's an opportunity for society shifts so we can look at um uh uh you know some opportunities to make some changes whether it be on health disparities or or otherwise mm-hmm. uh tamara asks how can she help how can she join the team oh yeah um, you can go to covidtracking.com and there are ways there of how, how you can help. Um, we have volunteer intake still ongoing, um, as we're going here. Um, we have a lot of volunteers, so we sort of are, are kind of squeezing everybody through like an onboarding system so that people come in. I mean, there's several hundred people, right? So we need people to be able to come in and find their team and go to their, you know, find a place where they can really make a difference and, um, and feel what it's like. I also think just to put a plug in, lo- supporting your local newspaper through this is like really, really important because most of them are under tremendous financial strain to the point of like, it, it's a question if any of them are going to survive, um, depending on how long this goes. And, um, that is one thing. Subscribing to those, uh, papers is, is actually like on an informational basis, extremely important thing to do. Um, because we see it day in and day out. We work with a ton of local reporters. Um, and we see that they're the ones who are just like pressing for this transparency. They're, they're pressing for the truth. Um, and I think it's just a, a case where having local people like national publications can only do so much. It's really going to be the local people pressing at the county level, at the state level, putting that the pressure on that give us the kind of data we need to, to kind of pinpoint community, state and national needs. I want to follow up on that. Like I'm one of the Uber consumers of all information COVID related uh, out there. So I, you know, I, I go to the Johns Hopkins site. I go to your site. I go to all the sites. I look at all the charts, but the one that the reporting that has made the most impact to me as somebody who lives in San Francisco is the stuff the Chronicle is Mm -hmm. doing. And even some of like the local, like mission local reporting, on what's happening gives me insight into what's happening in the hospitals. It gives me insight into what I'm seeing. It actually informs my decision-making personally. Uh, so I, I totally want to uh, uh, plug alongside of you the idea of supporting local newspapers. Um, Aaron asked a question, and um, this will be the last question before I, I ask uh, one more. Um, I'm going to kind of tweak her question a little bit. Um uh, her question was commenting on when the CDC or any other government agency will be collecting or reporting information in the way you are. Uh, so I'm going to tweak that and say, like, Alexis, I kind of want you to go out of business. Like, yeah. I want a government website that kind of does this or or whatever, Some somebody else that is in an official capacity to do this. Um, I, I, is that a yeah. possibility? And is that the way you see it, too? Yeah, I do see it that way. I mean, I think certainly like the data ingestion part of it, it's just crazy that it's volunteer effort. Um, it, it, it's just not where it belongs. You know, it belongs, uh, with a government agency that can enforce standardization, um, that can, uh, that can just sort of make this happen. You know, like we can't tell everyone report race like this. We have to beg them, you know? Um, so it belongs with the government. I mean, period, the end, and that's where it should be. Um, I think that insofar as something we bring that maybe the government might not, um, is we, we have been able to make this data like more accessible to more places by providing, um, the data in formats that, that are actually usable. Um, and so some part of me thinks that if the government were to really come online with like a similar, uh, data set, we would sort of scale way back, but we would still ingest that data and provide it in the way that we're providing it because it's um, uh, it's really important. 
to, to be able to actually use it, right? That's one thing we hear over and over. The, the other thing that I would say is that over and over, um, it's just more difficult for the government to get up on new types of data. So when a new thing starts to come out from the states, like racial data, soon to be antibodies, or like any number of things that we anticipate over the next uh, few months, it's going to be really hard for the government to just come out with those numbers. Um, it's just not the way they're kind of like set up to be sort of nimble like that. So one of the ways that I see our role right now is to be this kind of like frontier of the data, making sure that there's some historical record, making sure there's something for journalists to cite. Because what, it, what us doing that allows is local news orgs, national news orgs, other places to put those resources into doing the reporting instead of doing this data ingestion. Like in a funny way, though we have a public-facing website, I really think of us as primarily like an infrastructural piece of what's happening. And um, and I actually don't think that that will go fully away, even if the government starts to provide some subset of the data that we do, um, because I do think it's important to have to, to to take that burden away from news orgs at this time and to act as this sort of network glue that allows everyone to do what they do best and not just have like a grueling data entry process at the center. Like, let us do that. We built a process for doing that. So we'll do that. And you guys go do all the other things that are, that are a better use of your reporter's time. What are some things you're looking to that give you in the data that would give you some level of optimism going forward? Because I, I, Mm-hmm. I want to be hopeful mm-hmm. about the future, but I also want to be realistic about where we are, especially totally. here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So are there things that like trends you're looking for, pieces of information you're looking for that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah. I mean, what I would like to see is that the growth rate of testing and the growth rate of cases diverge. So basically right now, when you test more, you get more cases. And what I would like to see is that when you test more, you don't necessarily get more cases. You know, like that is that that to me is the thing. And what you would see there is you'd see the positive rate of the test begin to go down. Um, I also the other thing that I really think you we can see is that the New York region is clearly in the midst of a very bad outbreak, but probably on this plateau. Um, One thing we don't know is how long that plateau is going to go. And I think we work so hard to get to the plateau that we want that plateau to feel better. But honestly, it just means like still like 800 people a day are going to die for, for a long time. Um, I think the, the, the thing that I'm looking for is that other state and regional outbreaks. So like the one that's kind of centered around Detroit, uh, the one that's centered around New Orleans, um, the stuff that's going on in Georgia, the stuff that's going on in Massachusetts, that those outbreaks just don't reach the level uh, of the New York outbreak that, that we were able to get over the top of those faster so that that plateau won't go on for as long. Um, outside of Detroit, I feel pretty decent about that, but Detroit is in a really, really tough spot. Um, and so I guess what I would say is that the Detroit outbreak or that any of these outbreaks don't appear to shower all these other places with sparks because that's kind of like the metaphor that uh, epidemiologists use and i think it's really useful that like new york showers has been showering sparks all over the country right now and we really need to like think about what that means that there's probably a lot of now hidden cases in communities that haven't really seen any cases yet and we need to like really prepare for that but if we didn't see that, if we didn't see a bunch of new outbreaks, you know, three weeks from now, 
I would start to feel really good because at that point, New York probably should be coming down off the plateau um, and we could be going into, you know, May um, or, you know, June uh, without having a ton, like a second wave before our first wave is even over. So I believe in the American spirit of rolling up your sleeves in a time of crisis and, and helping everyone around you. And I'm trying to do that. Like I'm, I'm trying to donate supplies and support local businesses. I'm doing what I can in this difficult time. Um, but frankly, like the number one message I get is just like, just stay home. That's like the biggest help you can give. Uh, and like, sometimes that's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's what I can do is just stay home and not roll up my sleeves and do something. Um, I'm wondering just sort of, is there anything that, um, any recommendations you have around what people can do, really do to help in this time? You know, I've been thinking a lot about the, the kind of like social needs of people who, who don't necessarily have, um, a, a family around them for one reason or another. Um, you know, like in my case, I have two kids, I have my wife, I have like a lot of social contact and sort of love that sort of surrounds me. And I worry for people who are being told to stay at home and don't, don't necessarily have those structures in, in place and either their sort of family they were born into or their chosen family. And I, and I think that one thing you can do is sort of be reaching out to those people and sort of connecting with them, not to be like, Hey, are you okay? But just sort of, Hey, you know, was just thinking about you. You know, we, whenever I, I think of someone I know in that sort of situation, I try and just like right, right then just like reach out to them and just be like, Hey, just thinking about how you're doing. Because I, I do think it makes a difference to, for people to know in this state of such like physical isolation, um, that the, their emotional web of like kin and, and friends are still out there. That's great advice. I, I think we know from studying pandemics in the past that the mental health uh, fallout from pandemics is, is massive for many reasons. So I couldn't agree more with your suggestion. So it's an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers one, one final question on that simply, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? <laughs> I think it's to see the world as it really is. You know, there's a Stanford historian named Richard White uh, who studied sort of epidemics and fires and other disasters in late 19th century kind of American urban context. You had all these people come to cities, you know, these people uh, who were getting sick and the elites in these uh, in these cities initially tried to build systems that just protected themselves, um, protected their, their homes from fire, protected them from disease. And what they realized over time was that that was not possible, that like the city was a ship and it sailed or it sank as a whole. And that these systems um, that protected in uh, the city needed to cover everyone. Um, and I, what I see this pandemic is just like a flare in the sky is that like, this is true for us as a country, but it's also true for us as, as the world that, that the systems that we have in place that economically connect us are not enough to socially protect us. And that we need to build that global infrastructure all together um, and realize that the world is really, um, you know, a, a ship, you know, that it is going to, to sail or sink as a whole. And um, that, you know, astronauts oftentimes talk about uh, this thing called the overview effect. You know, they go up in space and they look down and they go, oh my God, the earth is one thing. And I think that there's a sort of pandemic overview effect that at the very opposite sort of scale um, you know, the, literally the opposite of planetary, you know, this like not quite living thing, 
um, that's at the tiniest scale can also provide us that same sense of connection and oneness as a, as a planet. And that's not a soft connection. That's not like, sort of, oh, that's so nice. It's like, no, in order for us not to die, we need to build the infrastructure of connection and social protection that, that, that sees us all as, as one community. Um, I don't know if that was a minute, but that's my that's, that's uh, I think that's perfect. It went a little more than 60 seconds, okay. but I think we'll allow it. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Alexis. Thank you to the entire team at COVID Tracking Project, all the volunteers, all the public health workers that are contributing uh, to the site. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in the virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash give. I'm Kishore Hari. Thank you so much and stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 